Father, we thank you for the promises in your Holy Scripture. We have read of them this morning in our worship text. We have sung them just now as we've gone over the 23rd Psalm, recognizing, Father, that our utter dependency on you is a condition of absolute weakness, absolute need, Lord, absolute depravity apart from your Spirit's fundamental change and resurrection of the core of our being to restore unto us that which was lost in Eden at the fall. Give us back, Father, that heart that desires after you, the possibility of following after you because of the Spirit's indwelling. Father, we are utterly dependent on the sovereign grace of your Spirit changing us from the inside out and then continuing that work through the process of our life coming into conformity with the standard of Jesus Christ, the only perfect man, our Savior and Lord through sanctification. And so we are thankful. It is truly your rod and your staff in the form of your word that governs us, that guides us, that leads us like a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, even like a, a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces and clears the way for the will, for your will and purposes to be accomplished in the earth, even as you comfort your people along the way. We thank you that your means are absolutely sufficient. If it's the destruction of our enemies, you can accomplish it by a word of your power. If it's the comfort and the dark hour of the soul's weariness, you can accomplish it by the presence of the Spirit's work to bring the promises of the gospel alive and well into the depths of our soul to quicken and encourage us that you will bless us and keep us according to your purposes that will be accomplished. He who has begun a good work in us will surely complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. As we turn our attention to your holy word, I pray, Lord, that we would be inspired and moved by its pages, that we would be fortified and equipped, that we would be encouraged and strengthened for the call that you have before us, Lord, to manifest the presence of Christ, to testify to his power, and to witness to a yet lost world of the only way, truth, and life, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for this opportunity, and may the Spirit be pleased to use this time to glorify your name through the growth of your people. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Praise God. This morning, we are in our Genesis series. Uh, Would you turn with me to Genesis 3 as we turn the page, so to speak? We come to a new chapter, not only in the book of Genesis, but a new chapter in the life of mankind, an extremely important chapter as well. Uh, Genesis is brief in its account in the very beginning, but don't mistake brevity for insignificance. Don't mistake a few words on the page for a lack of powerful meaning that they contain for us. The Bible often, though brief, is extremely significant. And this morning, though, we just cover uh, seven verses or so. I think we will find we'll only scratch the surface and perhaps I won't even get to all of my outline as we begin to see the nature of man and its change from a state of innocence and then the fall and the consequences of this sin for mankind himself, the nature of this discrepancy, this uh, trespassing of God's law, this corruption that enters into mankind. We'll begin to see these, uh, the effects of this evident and the truth of this apparent in this Genesis account beginning in Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The aim of this morning's message is to come to terms with the horror of sin. The Bible lays out very uh, unequivocally 
the nature of man's fall and the wickedness that flood, came through the floodgates of disobedience to corrupt mankind through our covenant head and the covenant of works, the first Adam, the one made from dust, and the corruption that followed his uh, failure to keep the law of God. So the Bible is very candid about the power of this evil and wickedness that has corrupted all of mankind who are in the lineage of our first parents. However, there is purpose in coming to terms with the horror of sin. And one of the purposes may I suggest to you today is part of the aim of this message as well, that we might appreciate redemption all the more. Again, in coming to terms with the horror of sin, may we appreciate redemption all the more. A man who doesn't know he's drowning, who doesn't think he is in danger, uh, considers the interruption of his routine an annoyance. I remember hearing just a brief anecdote before we start. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Genesis 3 in a moment. We'll read the word together. But I remember uh, first hearing Ray Comfort, a, go- a faithful gospel, gospel evangelist and minister through the years. And he would talk, he would use this analogy. He would say, imagine you're on an airplane and someone says, hands you a backpack and says, put this on, it will improve your flight. And so you look right, you look left, not other, you, know, you don't see anyone else wearing a backpack. Nevertheless, it seems like this guy believes in this product. So you put it on and uh, you lean back in your seat and it actually restricts that very narrow uh, space that you have on a plane anyways. Your back starts to uh, get a little sore because it's not exactly designed for proper lumbar support. And after a while, you begin to feel like you've got a bum deal. This is ridiculous. You take off the backpack and you put it under your seat. Now, the second scenario that Ray Comfort would use is this. Imagine if you told that person that this plane has had an engine failure. It's going to crash inside of 10 minutes. This backpack contains a parachute. Put this on. It is your means of rescue and salvation. And so what will be the attitude then of anyone who is cognizant of and aware of the fearful circumstance he finds himself in, he will put that backpack on, he will cling to it for dear life, he will be thankful for it, he will even be able to withstand the mocking of his neighbors. They are the fools. He is the wise man if he clings to this only means of salvation. And so in this illustration, it's the horror of the crash that allows him to appreciate the means of salvation, the backpack, if you will. And so it is with the gospel. It's the horror of sin realized in our consciousness that moves us to a greater appreciation of salvation in Jesus Christ. With that introduction, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word again this morning? With your Bible open to Genesis 3, 1 through 7, listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today. Genesis 3, 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Fallout of the Fall. Fallout of the Fall. Just a turn of phrase there. Consequences, devastating effects of the fall of man, of original sin, of this moment in time recorded in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. The ominous opening words of Genesis 3, we just read them, don't they strike a chord of something bad about to happen? Quote, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God uh, had made. As we read the account of man's early days, and, and we hear that sentence, it should have a response in, in your mind, your consciousness, uh-oh, something bad is about to happen. It's the intent of the phrase. Man was made in this pristine innocence with this overflowing, luxurious supply. We have read of the glories of Eden, the, fr- the headwaters springing forth with a river, splitting into four, going through different regions, uh, and along its banks, jewels, onyx, gold, uh, bdellium. And flooding uh, the area with life-giving dynamic force such that trees grow up on either side. And innumerable, I would think, fruit trees are available for man to partake in save one. Only one. And yet, in spite of all this beauty and glory that we see laid out, there is a note of discord introduced in the text. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. I wonder how he will use his subtle ability to twist and to manipulate and his cunning, uh, and his cunning uh, powers to uh, deceive man, of course, is, is the idea here. This signals a dramatic shift in the biblical record. What soon follows is an entire, entirely new reality for the nature and destiny of all of mankind, Adam, Eve, and their progeny. There is an absolute There are absolutely devastating implications for what happens in Genesis 3. To illustrate this, the Scottish Puritan Thomas Boston wrote a book entitled Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. And in this work, Thomas sought to identify four categories of the human experience in light of the Scriptures, in light of redemptive history, you could say. Those categories are as follows. Number one... He labeled primitive integrity, or you could say a state of innocence. This was Adam and Eve before the fall. Number two, he entitled entire depravity. This is the state of fallenness that we read of, we've just read of in Genesis 3. The wickedness that floods man's soul, the corruption in its entirety. This depravity, Thomas Boston states, is the second of man's states. Thirdly, begun recovery. This corresponds, of course, to regeneration. Being introduced in your experience to the personal redemption of your own soul, a recovery has begun. When Christ invades with the truth of the gospel and the Holy Spirit fundamentally changes your very nature and being then the fourth state of man is twofold, consummate happiness or misery. Of course, this would be the glory of heaven or the eternal judgment of hell. Fourfold state of man. Most simply stated, innocence, fallenness, conversion, glory, or eternal judgment. Now, Genesis 3 records man's transition from which state to which state. His first state of innocence 
to his second state of fallenness. This fallen state now, after Genesis 3, is our universal experience. As sinners, we, by inheritance from Adam and by our own commission, both by our works and by our nature, have experienced this corruption. We do not know the state of innocence. The only human beings who knew the state of innocence, in fact, were Adam and Eve. That is to say, the only mere human beings. The only hope is redemption through Jesus Christ. How can we be saved from this entire depravity? As Thomas Boston puts it, the only hope is redemption through Jesus Christ, the Savior and sacrifice and that He accomplished through our Savior and His sacrifice that He accomplished through His redemptive work on Calvary. When we consider these aspects to appreciate in greater depth our great salvation, it is fruitful to consider the particulars of, in Thomas Boston's words, our entire depravity, the fallenness of man. Genesis 3 reveals these details for us to behold as we marvel at the fallout of the fall. So let us consider unfolding realities upon the second state of man in three categories this morning. First, the instrument of the fall, that would be sin. So let's look what we can learn from the nature of sin in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Secondly, the consequences of the fall, what was lost, what was upended in this event. And thirdly, in conclusion, to add a hopeful note, the scope of redemption given the fall. And this will touch upon our worship text in that, uh, the great prophecy of Revelation 21, where Christ our Lord proclaims that He is making all things new. Unfolding realities upon the second state of man. First of all, the instrument of the fall, namely sin. Uh, young people in the room, I wonder if you could tell me what sin is. Does anyone know what sin is? Can you give me a definition? When you disobey God's law, that is a great one. Anyone else have a definition for sin? Sometimes we say breaking God's rules, right? Does anyone know the confession, what the confession says is the definition of sin, Westminster in particular? It's falling, yeah, back there. <laughs> Evan? A sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's a fancy way of saying not measuring up to God's standard of perfection in the law. Sin is breaking God's rules. Sin is not measuring up to His standard of righteousness. Sin necessarily separates us from God who is in His perfections, in His state, perfectly and only holy. Therefore, in His presence, and therefore in His, in the environment in which He dwells, a sanctuary like Eden, no sin will be and, or can be tolerated. And the same can be said in the New Jerusalem, which we'll read of later, the end of this message, Revelation 21. There is no sin there. There are no corrupts. The, the, uh, those, uh, there is no corruption. Those who are corrupt in their sin uh, and remain so in an unrepentant state are described as dogs, as uh, kind of ravenous um, and, uh, uh, you know, rabid animals that are, uh, that are banished from the premises of God's holy place. Uh, and, and so it is that sin is falling short of the glory of God and therefore separating ourselves until such time as we are fully and completely redeemed from the presence of the Almighty. Sin was the instrument that the devil used to accomplish this change of states in, the, in man, if you will, from the state of innocence to the state of sin or fallenness. 
Notice how he accomplished this. First of all, we remark how he, or we, uh, we uh, note how the devil twisted God's words. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And one way his craftiness is seen is that he takes the words of God and he twists them. He manipulates them. He uses them in a way that is nefarious to the will and intentions of the Lord and tries to weaponize for his purposes what God has stated uh, to glorify him in spirit and in truth. He asks the woman a question. He goes on. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And notice what the enemy has done in this phrase. He has reframed God's command to a question, very subtle, very crafty. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God has spoken. The devil fully knows it. Eve fully knows it. Adam absolutely knows it. To frame what God has said unequivocally as an open question is to introduce a craftiness and a twisting of God's word that is the prelude to evil, to wickedness, to corruption, and to depravity. Are you hearing an application for our day? Is this something, is this an, uh, something that the enemy only did once back in our early history, but doesn't happen today? No, of course not. One of the first ways that the craftiness of evil is seen, even in our experience, is to take something that is absolutely clear in Scripture and to reframe it as an open question. Hath God really said? Is it really true that the... You know, we need to have all things on the table in in our pursuit of truth. Everything should be open for questioning. Oh, really? Do you think that God's words proclaimed with authority from your maker and creator are open for review and for questioning and for scrutiny? And do you think you as a created contingent secondary being that owes your existence to him retains the luxury of skepticism? Hath God really said? You see, if Eve was to consider this a good point, If she was to respond in a way to converse with what is presupposed in this first question, she is assuming a place that is insubordinate to what God has created. She is to be submissive to God's word and to bow before his authority, not to say, hmm, I wonder if you might have a point there. Go on. No. Because in doing so, she is considering something questionable that God has stated as absolute fact, and she knows it. And the devil is attempting to use this line of questioning to suppress that truth in unrighteousness, to tempt Eve to take the place of authority over God, to presume to be a judge over him, and Adam as well, of course, in the context. And so we see this instrument of the fall, introduced very subtly, starts with a twisting of God's word, a reframing of what God has spoken into an open question. Secondly, adding to the law. The woman responds in a curious, interesting way. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Again, God said, this is Eve quoting God, ostensibly, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, 
neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Uh, second question, uh, young people. Is this correct? Did Eve, is Eve correctly quoting God? Does she get God's instructions right? Or is there something wrong with what she says? And what part is wrong? Any other, any other ideas? Which part is wrong? Yep, that is bad to do. Well, I'll give you a little hint. I'll give you a little hint here. Listen closely. Eve says, God told her, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then here's the questionable part. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Did God tell her you couldn't touch the tree? No. So Eve is misrepresenting the word of God. Here, Eve is actually twisting the words of God. And the question comes to her mind, why? Why is she doing this? Well, in effect, she's adding to the law. She's saying that God has required more than what he originally said. And what would be the motive, her purpose for doing so? Perhaps Eve adds this additional language, this unsubstantiated command to not even touch it, to God's original decree to give her case or to uh, lend credibility to the opinion that God's law is unreasonable. God said, don't eat from the tree. He said, don't even touch it. That's, that's kind of ridiculous. Don't, don't you think that's unreasonable? Again, do people do this today? Now, you hear this everywhere you go. People misrepresent the law of God. Why? Because they want to paint God as unreasonable, tyrannical, as a, um, a master, uh, an unrelenting, unmerciful master in his demands. And so they look with scorn and rebuke upon the Old Testament And they spit metaphorically on the notion of a God who would command stoning for X sin or Y crime. They hate the fact that God has spoken and there are consequences for sin. And so to make him look even worse, they portray the law of God, not as a glorious standard of truth whereby we can measure righteousness and when we fall short, God's gracious interposition to stay the course of man is available even in the civil law. No, instead, they say it's a tyrannical uh, regime that God instituted in the Old Testament. You know, I'm so thankful we don't have a theocracy like that in our nation today. These phrases are very dangerous. I'm not saying that the, uh, the, the framework of Old Testament uh, social order in every jot and tittle is to be replicated in our day today. There are aspects of hermeneutics that would uh, guide us into, uh, but uh, you know that that would guide us to correct applications and so forth. Uh, nevertheless, was there ever a time in God's order and commands where He could be said to be unjust? Was there ever a time when God's commands were in fact unreasonable? Absolutely not. And if you believe that. You are biting down, as it were, on the fruit of deception that was offered to Eve from the very beginning. You may have a point, devil. I think God is being a little unreasonable. He won't even let me touch the tree. Thirdly, under twisting of God's word, reframing the command to a question, adding to the law. Thirdly, the enemy chooses to focus on what she can't do versus God's provision. Prohibition is the focus, the emphasis over provision. Um, notice, the, the devil said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He is focusing her attention 
on the one area that is restricted um, in the life and in, the, in, and in the, the joyful, glorious, free existence that God has created for Adam and Eve. Turn back with me to chapter 1. In, chap- in chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them, Adam and Eve. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and uh, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice, this is the call, and to this call, God supplies everything necessary and more. God said, verse 29, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, (coughs) you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Does it sound like God was being stingy to you as we read these verses? God had gloriously supplied an amazing, uh, for an amazing calling for Adam and Eve. <coughs> he had given them free reign within the realm of his uh, glorious new world to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill, fill it. And he said, you can have, <coughs> for these purposes, every fish of the sea. And he said, over every bird that flies through the course of the heavens, you are in charge of. They are yours. I give them as an overflowing, lavish gift to you. And more than this, if this isn't testimony enough of a gloriously lavish God, who in His mercy and grace and His provision and providence supplies every need of man and more, You can have every plant yielding seed on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. And of course, in the context, there was but one single tree out of the, I don't know, millions of birds and animals and trees and so forth that Adam and Eve were called to partake of their fruits and their bounty and to steward and to guide into a place that would multiply with the testimony of their legacy going forward to generations of obedience in this beautiful, pristine, innocent world, there was only one tree that was outside the purview of their dominion mandate. That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so to this one single tree, this one prohibition, the enemy turns his attention and says, that's not fair. That is not fair. What a ridiculous, absurd statement or uh, implication. God in Genesis 1, 29 through 30 had lavishly provided beyond anything you could possibly imagine for man, but he was holding out on them. There was one tree he said they didn't have permission to eat from. That's not fair, the devil said. His, his uh, claims were absurd in the extreme, but how did he accomplish his point? How did he manipulate the consciousness of Adam and Eve at this time? He did so by denying God's glorious provision and focusing on the prohibition. Again, is there any application for our day? When people think of God's Word, especially in broader culture, they despise it because they Only think of the things that God has said we shall not do, forgetting all the while that it's in God's glorious interest 
that we avoid these things. His glory is dependent on us. And, but, more than, but in addition to this, it's in our best interest according to the way that he has designed us. So in order for us to thrive, in order for us to have a fulfilling life, even interacting in this earth, there are certain things that God has said, thou shalt not. But, in, but man drives himself crazy listening to the deceitful voice of the enemy. He says, God's holding out on me. That's not fair. The one thing I can't do, I'm going to ignore the thousand things I can until I've transgressed I'm into that territory and partaken of the forbidden fruit. <clears throat> in each of these examples that we see in our day and a million you know, anecdotal examples or what, what have you, and all the way back to the original example, we see how the enemy uses the twisting of God's word to accomplish the fall through this instrument of sin. Secondly, he twists the covenant. Twisting God's word, twisting the covenant. First of all, he, he uh, denies God's turn. So you remember what the covenant was, uh, do you not? It was very simple in terms of relationship that God had laid out. The prior uh, chapter, verse 15, the Lord took man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, <clears throat> you shall surely die. So the covenant terms are simple. Obedience unto life, disobedience unto death. My word is clear. I've given you all this bounty, but you must, there is one tree of which you must not eat. And if you obey, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. Those are the terms of God's covenant, the original covenant of works or covenant of life, as we call it in systematic theology. Notice that it's on these very terms that the devil introduces doubt. He said to the woman, again, verse 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden, uh, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? <clears throat> and later he expands upon this seed of doubt by questioning the covenant as well. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's a twisting of the covenant. The enemy says that God is holding out, he is lying to you. The very opposite is in fact the case. Now, again, a modern application. When people talk about freedom, liberty, the ability to uh, advance in, in, their, in the realization of their own humanity, what, what do they think is the key to that kind of uh, self-indulgent joy? It's almost always indulging the things that God hates. I need to be free to redefine the terms of marriage in this culture, a sinful man thinks. I need to be free to identify as something different than God has ordained from creation. He made them man, male and female. No, I won't be content until I can rearrange the architecture of reality in my own image and arbitrarily and by my own fiat word create a world in my image. And when I do that, then surely I will be alive. I will be like God. I will be my own sovereign. I will take control of the reins of history and I will captain my own destiny. This was the promise of the evil one. This is a twisting of the covenant terms. The enemy convinced man that he would be most free, he would be most alive when he transgressed God's law. 
He says, the day you transgress God's law, in so many words, you will not surely die. God, he's, he's a little jealous of you acquiring the same position and status as him. And what he's not telling you is when you eat of it, if you partake of the things you shouldn't, your eyes will be open and it will introduce you to a whole new world of glorious self-actualization, which is a fancy word for realizing your human potential. And so the lie of modernism was a lie. It's not so modern, is it? The lie of self-actualization, of progress, of man defining the terms of his own pathway to glory was alive and well from the first days of creation, all the way back in our text today. It's a flippant denial of sin's consequences. It's a twisting of the covenant. It's an open negation of what God has said. Uh, In this, the devil questions God's motives, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. God's intentions can't be trusted. He's hiding something from you. He's not giving you full disclosure. He knows that you will actually uh, abound with all kinds of glorious intellectual discoveries if you, you know, chart your way into this forbidden area and so forth. Finally, he says a false promise. This is the devil's covenant, if you will. For the Lord knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The enemy has pitched a whole new scenario, new terms of covenant to man, and it's in competition with the one true God. And he says, no, in fact, when you follow my way, when you listen to my word, if you obey me, if you take this suggestion, you will end up being blessed beyond your wildest dreams. Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is the promise of sin. The promise of sin is that you can take the place on the throne of your own life. You can be your own autonomous creature. You don't have to answer or submit to an authority over you anymore. The world of possibilities will be open to you if you just but partake in that thing that God has forbidden. So here we have the instrument of the fall revealed in a twisting of God's word and a twisting of covenant. And this is all part and parcel to sin. These are the ways the enemy takes, twists, manipulates, convinces man to break God's law with false promises, with false arguments, and with false notions of self-aggrandizement. And when man does so, he finds out that God's word is true. But he proves God's word is true in his own condemnation rather than in the blessing that God promised for covenant faithfulness. And so it was with our first parents, Adam and Eve. The other unfolding realities upon the second state of man, we talked about the instrument of the fall, namely sin, and how it shows up, those twisted forms. Next, let's consider the consequences of the fall. Uh, A bunch of things were upended. I mean, everything was turned upside down. Everything became a casualty virtually in light of this momentous transition from man's state of innocence to his state of uh, fallenness or entire depravity. And we see it right here in the text. First of all, dominion status. We read already that God had given man charge over dominion. That means you are to rule as a king. And these are your subjects. Sea over birds of the fish of the sea over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, isn't it interesting that in this wicked incarnation, if you will, Satan reveals himself as a serpent, verse three, or chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
He issues his word in this serpentine form, as it were, taking on the form of this beast of the field, and he convinces Adam and Eve to obey him. Do you see what's happened? It's an upending of the dominion order. Instead of man taking dominion over the beast of the field, now here's a beast of the field, or at least the <coughs> enemy in the appearance of the same, taking dominion over them. This is a humiliating state that man fell to. Instead of taking charge, if you had any creature that was under your charge, you had heard the word of God and had the calling as a priest and a king and a prophet, as it were, as we've discussed, as we've discussed that Adam had this charge from the Lord to serve and rule as his uh, co-regent, as his deputy on his behalf. And then you got this silly little reptilian creature coming up to you, and they're contravening the word of God. What was your duty to do? It was to guard the realm from this wickedness and to stamp it out. <clears throat> Adam's heel wouldn't even have been bruised. If he had just crushed the serpent's head, the first Adam would have been successful. He would have guarded the realm, as it were, and mankind would have advanced unto glory, as far as we can tell. Nevertheless, that did not happen. And instead of man taking dominion over the beast of the field in the form of this serpent appearing to him, it takes dominion over him. And the beast of the field exercises his rule over man, telling him what to do, and man in this humiliated state of fallenness, dutifully obeys. Man's privileged status is taking a significant hint. The consequence of the fall, his privileged status becomes a casualty of his sin. Secondly, his guardian calling. <clears throat> this overlaps with what I've just said, but man was called to do what? To guard, excuse me, to work and to keep the garden. Verse 15, chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And we've remarked how that language speaks to not just the tilling, the managing, the husbandry, so that the area, the realm flourishes, but also a guardianship, a, a protective role to guard it from any nefarious forces that might want to come in and to corrupt the area and corrupt the uh, environment. And so this was the guardian call that Adam had. He, in his kingly role, was to serve as protector of the realm against any nefarious forces. Adam was called to stand, as it were, with the sword of God's word and to fend off any wicked uh, being that might want to come in and deceive him or to uh, corrupt God's place of sanctuary in dwelling with man. And of course, this privileged status was upended with the fall. Suddenly, and we'll cover this more in future weeks, but in chapter 3, verse 24, what do we see? As a consequence of his sin, God drives out the man from the garden. Verse three, or chapter 3, 24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you see? Man is no longer guardian of this realm. Instead, now the realm must be guarded from him. Now, mankind is the evil force that may corrupt the garden if proper provisions weren't made. And now two of these celestial beings with lethal weapons stand between him and the garden. He has become the enemy. He has become corrupt. He has become the one for which the sanctuary of God's perfection and holiness must be guarded. A complete upending of mankind's guardian calling. Now, he is the wicked one. He is the threat. He must be guarded against. Thirdly, under man's privileged status, created order headship was upended as well. 
Notice how Satan disregards God's authoritative you know, chain of command in making his appeal. Who does he talk to first? Does he approach God as he did in Job and ask for permission to tempt him? Does he approach Adam with a good idea? No, he goes down the line to the woman. And as he does, as he does so, we can see in his bypassing God's order of things, according to headship, that he is being intentionally subversive. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Later in the text, we see, incidentally, <clears throat> that Adam was with Eve during the course of these events. This is surprising indeed. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Whoa. Adam was with her. He apparently is a passive in this entire exchange, therefore negligent in his duty, therefore participating in the upending of God's uh, created order, headship. Adam was negligent in his duty. He was not guarding and guiding his wife. He was not taking the role in leadership and interacting with this questionable voice. No. Instead, he allowed his wife to be deceived and duped by a beast of the field, at least in this uh, spiritual being that appears as a beast of the field. And then after she is corrupted, after she is convinced, he just partakes in the fruit as well. So what is pictured here? It's a complete upending of God's order of things, responsibilities of headship. Satan effects an end run around God's order. Instead of appealing to God, <clears throat> he goes around him and doesn't even appeal to Adam. He appeals to his helpmate. His success represents insubordination and negligence. And this is a guilt, this is a, 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 a um, proclamation of guilt that both Adam and Eve participate in. <clears throat> they should have known that this guy was up to no good, this serpent was up to no good. It obviously did not honor God's principles of headship, but sought subversively to upend the whole thing and was successful because Adam did not defend Eve. He did not step in and, uh, and uh, Eve listened to uh, the serpent in spite of what God and presumably her husband had already told her and so forth. So again, man's privileged status was upended. Everything is in a state of chaos now, and everything uh, is in an absolute mess unless and until redemption invades. Uh, secondly, man's vertical relationship, his relationship with the Lord is upended as well. Up until this point, the operative authority in man's life has been the Word of God and only the Word of God, and he has lived by the message and direction by the word. He could say with Jesus, Adam, in his state of innocence, my food is to do the will of him who commissioned me, who commands me. Um, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of mouth of, of the Lord. But after Genesis 3, he could say uh, such a thing no longer because now the operative authority in the consciousness of man was uh, changed out from the Word of God as something else. The Word of God was rejected for the lies of the enemy, the will of man, and the desires of their flesh. No longer is the authoritative Word, is the direction and the standard 
uh, and, and the leadership come from, the directives come from the Word of God. But in this event now, there is a substitute, uh, there is a substitute master over mankind. The lies of the enemy, his own will, uh, independent of God's, and the desires of his flesh. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, who told her all this junk, the enemy, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he was with her. And now the operative authority, again, was all of these things, what these things represent, good for the eyes, lust of the flesh. It was a desire to make one wise, boastful, pride of life. Uh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and boastful pride of life, these things now were king in man's new perverse worldview. Now, secondly, in man's vertical relationship, he's exchanged uh, his authority, as we've just mentioned, for something else, but also the covenant terms have been upended. Obedience as a way of life is rejected for uh, the satanic will to power as the way of self-actualization. And this is referencing some terms I used before. So up until this point, the terms of the covenant were obedience unto life. Obey my word and you will flourish. Obey my word and you will live. And now this ideal, this, these covenant terms are changed out for uh, the satanic will to power. Uh, Satan tempts them and says, you can be as God. You can self-actualize. In other words, you can fully realize all your human potential all the way up until you're a rival with God himself. Doesn't that sound like a great deal? And so man buys into it, and in so doing, the end of this is, of course, absolute destruction. God now will prove his word is true with the condemnation, the destruction, the well-deserved hell that an unrepentant man who is abiding by these terms deserves. Man's vertical relationship with the Lord is upended. Authority is switched out. Covenant terms are up. And finally, there's a godly fellowship is destroyed. Man's relationship, his unity, his fellowship, his friendship with the Lord is gone. In chapter 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. Of course, we read further. Next thing they hear is the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And do they run to him with anticipation of a glorious reunion? This is, after all, God manifesting himself, a theophany, as it were, in the garden. No, what do they do? They hide themselves from the presence of the Lord, God, among the trees of the garden. The Lord calls them, where are you? And they answer, we heard the sound of you, we were afraid. Actually, it's in the first person. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. These are tragic words indeed. This is a complete and utter collapse, a complete upending of the vertical relationship man with God. The fellowship is broken. Instead of seeking the presence of God and finding fulfillment and joy in Him, now mankind runs for fear of the presence of the Almighty because of His acute self-consciousness of His shameful state. Mankind knows enough to know that he can't stand in God's presence and live so long as he is naked and vulnerable to the judgment of God because of this indelible stain of sin. 
And no fig leaf of self-justification is sufficient to cover it. They still hide. They know the fig leaves aren't sufficient. They run away. There will be a sufficient covering, covering, brothers and sisters, offered. And this picture of sufficient covering by God's own sovereign hand takes place shortly in the text, and we will read it in the future. It is, it's seen in fulfillment language in the work of Jesus Christ that purchases, purchases for us white robes that sufficiently cover our sin, His righteousness given to us while our sin is taken upon Him. But until that time, until belief and faith in that means of redemption, there is an absolute upending of godly fellowship. And finally, I'll just touch this very briefly because we'll cover it more in future weeks. Man's horizontal relationships are upended as well. And we see this in the judgment that's forthcoming in chapter 3. Marital unity, the union, that glorious marriage that Adam and Eve enjoyed for a very short time, presumably, is upended, that joy and that peace and that unity is upended. Your desire shall be for your husband, for instance, this language of antipathy, of animosity between husband and wife as the default setting for the flesh enters in to the experience of mankind and he shall rule over you. So instead of this glorious co-regency and helpmeet situation of perfect compliments accomplishing God's will together, unless and until redemption comes, that relationship is going to be marked by strife and chaos and the Bible, the biblical record unfolds to reveal as much by example after example after example through the pages of Scripture. Man's connection, his relationship to creation is going to be upended. Again, this is the fallout of the fall. This is the horror of the curse. Curse is the ground because of you, verse 17, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat the bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you, you ta- shall return. So go about the blister-making, painful, sweaty, back-breaking work of surviving just a little bit longer before you end up in the very dust you're plowing, cursed man. The relationship to the environment was going to be one now of toil and anguish and animosity and resentment and hurt, difficulty, trial anguish all along the way of this eking out a survival in, in this new cursed realm in man's uh, fallen state of entire depravity. And thirdly, man's relationship with his future self was totally changed. There was an expectation of life and glorious life in Eden, and that was all interrupted. And now the future, the trajectory, the, the uh, destiny of man, again, barring redemption, was not faithfulness unto glorious life. That opportunity was done. There's no way for man to be saved by faithfulness anymore. Not man in his sin. Only one man could accomplish that. Of course, it's Jesus Christ. But now the trajectory, the future, the destiny, again, accepting redemption was condemnation unto death and hell. These are the consequences of the fall. This is the fallout of man's second state. These are the realities that unfold in Genesis 3. And as we read them, we come to terms, do we not, saints, of the horror of sin? And can we not relate in our personal experience and in the environment in which we live, the horror of sin and these principles still plague us? 
and still mark our way in this wicked fallen world, in spite of whatever creature comforts we manage to scrape together, you know, to make our lives more convenient? Does it give us any more peace? Does it give us any more happiness? Does it give us any more unity between brethren, any more cohesiveness in the social order? But no. Oftentimes people rail against advancements in technology because they fear they will be the end of us. Man harnesses the energy of the sun just to drop a bomb on a neighboring country and so forth. This is the horror of sin. But in closing this morning, in coming to terms with the horror of sin, may we appreciate redemption all the more. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Now we've covered a little bit of the scope of the fallout of the fall. But let me tell you, the scope of redemption is as far as the curse is found. What a glorious line from one of the hymns, Joy to the World. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes His glory known far as... I can't remember all the uh, words word for word. But in that hymn, far as the curse is found, the proclamation of God's glory and God's redemption going out and putting back together what was broken is the expectation. Is this legitimate? Where does this come from, this hope? Let's read again Revelation 21, beginning in verse 3. John speaking, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. Pause right there. Do you see what is restored here? Fellowship, union, sanctuary. Somehow reconciliation has been made. And behold, a new state of man is announced. A new state where man now is dwelling with God. They are His people. He is their Lord. God Himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The curse of Genesis 3 is a former thing that will pass away, and the redeemed realm, far as the curse is found, He makes His blessings known, and the redemptive power of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who accomplished the very work necessary to redeem all that was lost in the horrific fallout of the fall. Verse 5, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, Same words that Jesus echoed on the cross, are they not? It is done. Reminds us of the word of Christ. It is finished on the cross. He goes on, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Pausing there. The headwaters of Eden are reintroduced, as we've mentioned before, in and through Jesus Christ. For out of Him is an abundant supply, a wellspring of living water unto eternal life for all who partake. And this is what He said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You know, you still laboring in the second state of man are pulling up with blistered hands and this rope from Jacob's well water to sustain you. In this thorn and thistle infested ground, but there is a spring of living water, and if you could have but one drink, you would never have to return here, and you will live forever. Where is this water? She says that I may never thirst again. She's looking at the source. 
the headwaters of Eden bursting forth from Christ himself. He is the dynamic source of spiritual vitality. And in him, the Gihon and the Pishon and the Tigris and the Euphrates yet flow with banks bedazzled with jewels of gold, onyx, and bdellium. And the banks bursting forth in the tree of life on either side, whose fruit is for the healing of the nations. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Last verse this morning. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Praise the Lord. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we are so thankful that the promise in your holy scriptures of redemption is that as far as the curse is found, you will redeem. Behold, we are witnessing you marching forward through history and your redemptive purposes making all things new. For those who are born again in this place today, you have made us new. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus when we confess our sins and place our hope and faith in His death, His atonement for our salvation. We experienced personally in our souls a sovereign, miraculous act of you making our hearts new. And now, Lord, we gloriously anticipate, even as we mark through the pages of redemptive history, your activity stretching that power to redeem across the broad landscape of all your purposes from before the world began, so that from the beginning to the end, you as the Alpha and the Omega are creating a sanctuary for your glorious habitation with your people again that we will appreciate and enjoy if we trust in Christ, the second Adam, to restore what Adam lost. We thank you for this. We pray that you would seal with conviction and seal with certainty upon our hearts these truths so deep and so sure that we share them boldly and without doubt, Lord Jesus, or shadow of turning to our friends, that they might see in us a reason for hope and might turn to Christ and live. Lord, I pray that you would continue that redemptive work transforming this world, making all things new in our day and through your people. All to the praise of your great name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.